Welcome and welcome back to Not Your Token Minority, an interview podcast that explores and celebrates the stories of the global majority. I'm your host, Tal, and in this episode, I speak with musician Leon Zhang about how and why he made the decision to give up a promising career in one of the hottest tech companies in the world to chase after his dreams in LA's music scene. We also talk about his experiences growing up in New Zealand and why this drove him to the US to build his future. You are how many weeks in now on your trip back to New Zealand? I think about eight or nine weeks. Actually, honestly, probably closer to 12 now since I came back early early February or January. I'm not even sure, to be honest. Yeah. But it's but been a while. You're about to leave yep. literally tomorrow. Yes, literally tomorrow. Yeah. I'm going to Sydney first, make a stop, and then back to LA. So, How long have you lived in LA for? Uh, now I think about seven years, so four years of college. This is my third year now outside of college. It's been a, it's been a long time. Yeah. So can you, I guess, take me back to the beginning? Like, where did you grow up and what did you want to do when you were growing up and also how you ended up in LA? Mm -hmm. Well, okay. I... When I was growing up in New Zealand, uh, well, I grew up in Auckland. I was always interested in music. Going into high school, I really found an interest in like producing music because at Auckland Grammar, they had in year nine, they have this music program or a music class, I guess. And they start students off with garage band. And then we were just making really terrible beats. But I'd love to hear that one day. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm, I really want to find those. I, I don't know where they are, but I've, I've, found some of my old projects when I was around 15 when I used to make dubstep because I was just in oh love with that sound I got like head I got like Dr. J headphones <laughs> I was listening to a lot of that made a lot of music then I moved to I s transferred from Auckland Grammar to AIC um, which was a huge culture shock because it was just like a school full of Asians for context, because uh, for the listeners who didn't grow up in Auckland, so yeah. Auckland Grammar is is it a semi-private or a private school? It's a it's a public school. Oh, public, okay, yeah, yeah. it's a public school, but it's kind of located in quite a wealthy area, and it's primarily white. Uh, yeah, I'd say. I mean, there are a lot of Asians, but primarily white, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, did you grow up with mostly like white? friends around you yeah i i think so definitely way more white people i think towards an intermediate that's where i started having a friend group that was mostly asian and that carried through into Auckland grammar and aic is it's a private school right honestly now i think about it, it's more like a business where they it's a japanese school brought into new zealand where they try to help students go to america or uk right so. so what was it like for you as an asian kid growing up in the new zealand school system <sighs> that uh that one uh it was honestly i think it prepared me for the real world it was never something that i felt was ideal and so i I guess when I heard about AIC from my other friends that it was a school with a lot of Asian people, for once I felt like, oh, wow, this is going to be a level playing field for once. Like socially, just like everything, just growing up. I think I, I, I had an okay time growing up, but I noticed just a lot of internalized racism, wanting to be white, 
even with my brother, he bringing that internalized racism. I think he was a little bit more integrated into white culture, but solely because he was rejecting more of his Asian culture a lot more than I was and more than my sister. And so it was both at home and outside of home where I felt uncomfortable being Asian and going to restaurants, especially if it's like a cafe, not wanting my parents to speak Chinese at all. Honestly, like scolding them for it as well. Like just like, can, can you stop? Can you, don't, don't say anything. It'd be really tough even between me and my brother where we get into an argument and he would, cause we just say stupid stuff, but he would say, Oh, you have no friends. All your friends are Asian. All, all you guys are lame. And I would just stare at him and be like, Harry, you are Chinese. You, you're literally my brother. We are the same person, <laughs> yeah. but only until like a few, like once I moved to college, I realized that statement, how, how he had internalized that racism and how intense that was at that time. And I talked to him about it now and he's, he, he totally understands that and he completely, uh, I know it's learned from that, I guess. At AIC, I think it allowed me to first celebrate my culture a little bit more, just be okay with my identity first. Cause it's, it's not like you just go to one school and then suddenly it's fixed after growing up in this kind of society. It was there where I, Asian stuff was, you could talk about openly and, you know, have Asian food and not feel like you're weird for it. I think that was at first. But I noticed that even when I did have all those Asian friends on the weekends, I would be scared about going out with them or being seen with them because it was like I knew that when people see a group of Asians, people just look down on them or think they're weird or think they're lame. And I definitely felt that instance, especially with social media as well. Um, I guess because also like, you when so for example when you're at AIC when you were at AIC like you were surrounded by Asians a lot but it was almost like a bubble mm-hmm. inside the wider society right yeah exactly and so when you stepped outside of that bubble you still felt like just different mm-hmm. it was it was definitely a bubble it's kind of like a a small safety net right before I went to college when I went to America though it was a very white school as well. I mean, in California, I actually wanted to go to UCLA because I saw that the Asian population was like 30 to 35% and that, that really excited me. But at, uh, at USC, it was, I had a culture shock as well again for after being in a very full, fully Asian school going to, to college. Why did you decide then that you wanted to go to university overseas? I think for me, it felt like a restart in life because I just really didn't like the idea of continuing in Auckland in this environment. I never, I really never felt at home or accepted here, to be honest. But at the same time, I, I don't know, I liked the idea of America. It was the big grand thing. I was really into dance at the time and. At the time in New Zealand, there weren't many dance crews. I started a dance crew in my high school, but there wasn't much of a a community support system there, at least for me. And so I saw, like, when I would go on YouTube, I'd always watch all these dance crews, and they'd always be in LA, whether they were college teams or, like, professional dance teams. And so 
before I knew what I wanted to do in school, I just wanted to be around Asians and I guess be around the dance community because that's where I kind of felt at home and where I found my confidence initially, I feel like. Did you find LA to be more accepting or more uh, like diverse compared to Auckland? I think there are bigger communities that are more accepting. For example, like the dance community, which is huge there, very accepting and they just tend to have or at colleges they have like the korean student association the chinese student association and they'll have like dance teams and you can join the association go to parties and whatever i think because there are such well-established organizations there it feels it feels like you're part of the real thing you know where like people aren't really nervous about the identity but when it comes to fraternities, it's a that's a whole nother bubble within um, schools themselves. Like half the school loves it, the other school hates it. But you know they they still remain in the schools. But in fraternities, especially, I don't think they're very accepting at all. Probably the less minorities you have in your fraternity or sorority, the better your ranking there is. Uh, you have so there's like a there's a ranking system. And it's, is it like an official ranking system or is it sort of unspoken or? So unspoken, but people speak about it. Okay. <laughs> and you could, you, we would like, like my friends would Google this and like, oh yeah, Lambda Chi is like a uh, top frat. Oh yeah, Sci Fi is also um, up there. Oh no, you don't want to go to D Chi. Like, <laughs> like those are a bunch of dweebs, whatever. But this, the frat with a bunch of dweebs or whatever, that school, uh, that co- um, fraternity, would have more minorities and it also be it's just very superficial because it's either based on like your height or appearance or just based on how rich you are and usually if you're you're some rich white kid you'd be in the top right like automatically you don't have to be skilled in anything you just have to be tall white and blonde and i noticed that so there's a greek row and it's just one street with all the fraternities on one side, all the sororities on one side, and everyone trying to get into the frats and sororities because that's where the party scene was. Um, so you couldn't go to parties without being in a sorority or a frat? Well, when you first get to college, no, because that's where that's what everyone knows, like the parties, the fraternities and sororities. I think once you go deep into college, like after – the first couple of weeks and you find other organizations you realize there are a ton of other parties but i think it those are already well established and like it's a it is the party scene like those fraternities and stories are really only there for partying they don't really do much else they do some like philanthropic work but like it's 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 really fake honestly it's just them getting drunk on a weekend to to fundraise for money but yeah um so were you part of a fraternity? Yeah, so that, yeah, I joined one the second semester of college. The first first semester I was in a dance team and then all my friends were going to these parties and I'd always wanted the full American experience, or at least that's what I told myself. And I joined a fraternity. It was an interesting experience. It was fun because I noticed, as bad as it sounds, it gave you social status. And it was, it was like, oh, you're in a frat. Oh, that means you're at a certain level. Oh, you're in this frat. Okay. Even more respect. And so people, I, you know, you'd see all these kids going 
walking around campus and they'd be wearing their frat shirts or whatever. And then, you know, people would think they're cool or they just immediately had this sense of respect. Do you feel like there's too much emphasis maybe on like social yeah. class? Yeah, there it really is. It's, it's very prevalent there. I think in that bubble though, because once I, I, I dropped the frat after a year, it not none of those things occurred to me or really affected my life. But when you're in that bubble, when you're trying to be in that fraternity scene, then you're f- like, what frat you're in really matters. Like, what parties you're going to really matters. Who, which girls you know, like which, what people you know. I think now the fraternities and sororities are now based on like influences. Back then, there weren't as many like the influencer scene wasn't as big, but now I'd say it's like who has the most followers, and then they'll probably get into the top sorority. A lot of celebrity children would be in these frats, like Patrick Schwarzenegger. He was in the top frat, and so yep. every every kid wanted to be um, in that one. And now it's, I think, oh yeah, yeah, it's it's like social currency. Like if you're like a celebrity or like yep. an influencer with hundreds of thousands of followers yeah. on Instagram or whatever, like you're immediately you immediately have more currency and yeah. more clout. Yeah, I hear that with exactly, so much these days. That's exactly that. Okay, interesting. And that's especially important in LA, and that's why like coming back to New Zealand, I've it's been very refreshing because while in an LA. Even though you'll know the concept of clout and you'll think it's superficial or whatever, you get sucked into it because it, it's true. Like when you have more followers, people are nicer to you or want to be your friend more. And I think just because Hollywood is so close to LA and there's so many celebrities around, everyone wants to be somebody. And if you're not somebody, then you you feel really bad for yourself i guess like you can't just go there and just be like a normal person living a normal life (laughs) not right i mean i'm sure there's a certain community for that but for the most part it's it it is true when you go to la i think you do change a little bit and i notice that for myself as well does it feel quite competitive it's competitive in the way where it's every person for themselves like there'll be they'll be nice to you or like try forge a relationship so that they can get some sort of edge. And at first it's like, everyone's really nice to each other and you feel great. Like if you have some sort of social status, then it's great. Everyone's nice to you. You suddenly get a lot of friends. You go to all these party scenes, whatever, but you'll notice that at the end of the day, you'll be very lonely still because you won't have these friends. You can't really depend on. It's very superficial as Mm -hmm. you were saying before. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, what did you study at USC? I, I studied business administration and then I minored in communication design. Where I really spent most of my effort was the design school and the communication design. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then you got to work for, was it Tinder first or mm-hmm. was it? Yeah. yeah. So my, well, my full, first full time job was Tinder. I was doing graphic design beforehand. And then I got an internship at Tinder for product design right before I graduated. At what stage of its journey were you there for? So had it already become quite widespread? It definitely became really widespread. I mean, at the time, everyone already knew Tinder. So I joined about in uh, early 2018. Um, so it was already a 
well-established app or dating app. I think there were even like there was already a Black Mirror episode about the the Tinder, the t- the swiping thing. It started at USC, actually, my school, mm. in the frat scene, mm. where their head of marketing would tell people, "Hey, you need to download this app before you go into this party." And so, I would hear all these like stories and be like, "Oh, wow, that's amazing!" Like. You know, it's crazy how this app kind of blew up, but I had a good experience at Tinder. Although it was at the later stages, I felt like I had a good impact and I was making stuff that I enjoyed. And it was honestly my first job and my first like real job, I guess. And at the time, I'm just taking whatever I can, you know, it's just whatever. Did you get a lot of insight into dating dynamics? Because you mm-hmm. have also talked before about actually seeing like how Asian men, for example, are ranked compared mm. to other yeah. men of other ethnicities. No, I, I remember cause so just as I started working, I had, I had tended it downloaded and then I, I'd look at my likes and my coworker would be like, Oh, you have a lot of likes. You know, Asian men get zero likes on this app. And I was like, rip. Wait, oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Like, that's terribly sad. And we talk about it because there would be this, uh, some people wanted to introduce a race filter and I actually kind of worked on it for a second because I was just like a, I was just a slave at the time. I was like, okay, <laughs> uh, that idea. Okay, sure. I'm just going to work on it. I wasn't thinking yeah. for myself. Um, but when I would design screenshots, for example, like for the app store, you know, thinking about what, what models I'd use. I'd always advocate for um, people of color and it'd be very seldom when there would be an Asian male. I like some, like I, I noticed towards the end, they started getting Asian females before it was just a blonde white woman for the first card. I'm like, this looks like every other, like you, you really going to put this, but I, I'm glad they kind of updated it after with my boss. So I, I designed a screenshot where it was a, probably kind of middle eastern looking man who's very stylish very cool looking and i put him as like the lead guy on one of the screenshots or i think it might have been an advertisement and she said oh i think yeah this guy looks cool uh do you really think people in like the rest of america will identify with this and i was like what do you mean like I think he looks really cool. He's really handsome. And, or, well, she was my boss and I just started working there. So I was going to listen to whatever she said. And so I changed the guy. But in retrospect, I'm pretty disappointed because when you have that kind of power as a dating app and how people perceive others, you shouldn't have to cater to a more narrow minded subset of people, right? Yeah. And I'm glad towards the end. They even started using my screenshots. They asked me to take some like profile photos. And although I quit now, they told me in their mockups right now, they still have my photo. That's so funny. Yeah, using it. So I'm really glad, not because it's me, but because it's an Asian male, Mm. because I've been advocating for that for the longest time. Mm. And I've been doing it subtly by putting in like Asian people, black people, um, you know, Indian people, Middle Eastern people. So why did you quit? So I actually wanted to quit within w- one year of working there, but I knew, okay, this is a great job. I'm very lucky to have this, 
they are sponsoring me to put me in the lottery already. Like, why should I quit? I did quit because at the time, I just recently became friends with Rich Brian. He asked us to be on his Rich Brian and Wu Tang collaboration album, and when I heard that, I also met these other crazy film guys, and they want to make videos for me. And I was like, okay, everything's happening right now. I, this is the time to quit. Like, I could keep making money from work, you know, sure, but if there's any time for me to chase my dreams, it's now. I, I, this time, as I get older, is just going to be less and less. And I really enjoyed my job at Tinder, but why I quit was because I, I think with music, I have a, a bigger mission there. I'm making something that's mine because I'll notice. You, companies they'll get all these talented people to just build someone else's dream and they don't really care about you at all and so i kind of just transitioned into music i'm also doing design right now but i think i just had to make that choice for myself and it's very scary because i was giving up all my credibility as like this golden child of the family that my parents love to brag about because I had this great job I was getting paid well and it was respected in California because it was in the tech industry it took a toll on me actually too because that was the way I was raised like before my parents told me you know I had to be a doctor and so I'd always had all these expectations of myself so when I had this job I felt really great about myself the kind of social Cap, it also gave you a certain type of social capital. Like, like in college, it, it, not only what fraternity, but what internships you were getting, what companies you were working at. There was all kinds of social capital. And so I really felt like I was at the top of the world, but I knew that no matter what raise I got, no matter what promotion I got, it wouldn't make, I'd be happy for one day and then it, it'd be the same. And so when I gave that up, not only did I have to really, I don't know, work things out in my own head and remove that superficial aspect, but also have tough conversations with my parents. How did that go? My parents weren't very supportive of it. And I realize now, I've actually just made this realization maybe two days ago, my parents really care, or maybe my mother really cares about appearance, like face, a lot. I think for her, why she's hurt, or upset is not because for me I've quit this job but maybe because she doesn't have this thing to brag about now and so she has to go to explain to everyone oh yeah my son is unemployed and working on music and yeah he loves it but he you know he's 25 and he's got a plan and that's a hard thing for Chinese parents to talk about because it's no one's experienced that and in Chinese culture that seems like very low social capital Again, it's that social class sort of ranking, right? It is. Uh -huh. But it's been hard not being able to release any music within the past couple of months because I've had I'm nothing to show for it. You know, I've quit my job, but I don't have much to show for it. I have a lot in the vault and unreleased, but it's it's been difficult getting my parents to understand and still. I'm very excited to return to LA and get away from home because then I can work on my own thing without have my mum like chiming in every second. Yeah, tell me more about your music journey. So where did it start and all that yeah. kind of stuff? I, well, I guess initially in New Zealand when I was just making dubstep music, um, my dad bought me 
a copy of Logic Express. It wasn't even the 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 good version of Logic for for Apple computers. Um, I was making dubstep, moved to America, forgot about music because I was really into the dance scene, and then right after I graduated from members of my dance team, we went on a trip to Joshua Tree and we were really drunk one night and everyone just we just huddling around and started rapping. Boys, girls, like maybe 12 of us. That was the first time I've ever rapped in my life. We spent the rest of that weekend just freestyling and it was so liberating and I realized, hey, like we could make a fun track. Like I hear the music on SoundCloud, it's terrible. You know, some people, they're just beginners, like they just do it. Why can't we? We continued freestyling at dance practice and the three of us, me and Jack and Colin, we just kept freestyling specifically together because we were closer and we were in the same family line, our dance team. We kept rapping and then the first time I I just sat down on my computer and I played this beat and I recorded a song for the first time and it's actually our first single, Sunday. That kind of opened our eyes because I sent it to them and they were like, wait, this is actually good. You you can sing. I was like, wait, really? Because <laughs> I had just been conditioned to be so unconfident about at least singing or making music. There really wasn't that community, but they kind of helped me believe myself and then they hopped onto the track we released that song and that kind of started the whole journey. And ever since I think I've rediscovered that passion I once had in high school, because when I was 15, I would stay up every night to 3am just making beats, work on my songs, not even showing it to anyone. I, I maybe show my brother or my parents, but they'd listen to this dubstep and be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what is that noise? Yeah. What is that noise? Like, I'd show my brother's clarinet teacher and he was like, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this, this is, this is good. This is good. Obviously, he doesn't understand it. And my parents try to be supportive. They would try to take me to like a composition teacher. But my piano teacher told me like, look, with this kind of thing with songwriting, you just have to do it and just go with the flow. So how did it grow from there? Because you have quite a particular mission as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that mission became clear after a few songs in so why well we're in a band called stir fried boys but that was just a joke at first i think we'd listen to stir fried by the migos beforehand before we were partying and we were just like saying oh whipping in the stir fry you know like rapping and freestyling like that you know whipping the walk we caught ourselves that we thought it was funny but when i wrote my second song I noticed like what I wanted to write about was the kind of racial issues that I've been feeling since growing up. I talk about, oh, I'm not fitting in, but now people want to be my friend or like people, you know, like people now society's changed and it was kind of a pessimistic outlook on it. That kind of evolved as we start to make more music. I realized how much people identified with a band, a full Asian band, boy band called Stir Fry Boys. Mm. Like people not only loved the appearance of it, but like how we were so proud to call ourselves Asian, especially in LA. And so that's how I get my gears turning. I've always been very passionate about like talking about racial issues. And I go back to New Zealand every year and I, I talk to them about like my new findings. And then my friends in New Zealand would say, Roy, I think you're think you're looking into it too much. Like 
racism isn't that intense, bro. Like, it, it doesn't really exist. And I'd say, no, bro, I, I think you're not thinking about it enough. And I'm and glad now it's starting. Are these your Asian friends here? Yeah, oh, so they are, yeah. That's, see, that was a very interesting thing. Like, and the same friends would say, hey, isn't Stir Fry Boys, like, isn't that, like, derogatory towards yourself? Like, isn't, oh, isn't that racist towards yourself? On one perspective, I think, you know, you could see that, but it's because he probably wasn't comfortable with him, with calling himself something like that. And in New Zealand, I never would have been, but in LA where there are just so many more Asians and so many different types of Asians and a place where Asian culture is way more accepted, it felt a lot more natural and people are proud to identify with it. White people liked like listening to Stir Fry Boys because it was cool. It was, you know, <laughs> Asian, but like yeah. we rapped, you know, and so it was, yeah, it was interesting going back and forth between New Zealand, and LA, and seeing the dis- different perspectives. But I, I'm glad now. So that's why beforehand I wouldn't have ever thought that New Zealand would have a Stop Asian Hate rally. Just based on my interactions with my friends, I guess because in the wake of those events, that's got people to be like, to want to stand up and start talking about it, you know? Finally. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, a lot of them have just been in denial. And I hate that because, you know, I I do think a lot. So when people would say, oh, you're thinking about it too much. I'm like, am I thinking about it too much? No, like, like, I see how white people treat other Asian people and see, like, I'm a watcher, so I, I visually see, I can't say specifically what incidences, but I see, you know, fraternities, all that kind of stuff. I've seen it in America, and I've seen it in New Zealand, and now I've internalized it. Why do my friends in New Zealand say I'm thinking about it too much? Um, and they've also said, you know, racism has gone a lot better in New Zealand. No. I don't feel like the issues around racism, regardless of who it's towards, have really changed much. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the more mainstream and widespread conversation around how racism is in this country has only really been more of like a recent phenomenon, which I think maybe explains maybe like your friends' responses. Um, They've probably maybe not been in circles where they've thought that critically, about like their own experiences and like the experiences of others in their communities Mm -hmm. and our society here. And I I do think that a lot of events tend to mirror what's happening in the States. For example, um, with last year with the Black Lives Matter movement, I didn't really hear that much sort of progressive or constructive conversation around race in New Zealand before then. Mm. Granted, I was also out of the country, but, you know, like, I would have never imagined that kind of reaction here if it hadn't happened in the U.S. at that time. Do you think the BLM movement started the conversation here as well, like where people are talking or openly talking about race now? Yeah, I think maybe it brought it more into the mainstream for sure. But still, I just, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Okay. So 
with your music then is a lot of it um because i know with one of your recent single singles it was more like a almost like a parody like mm, kind of yeah you know tongue-in-cheek kind of stuff yeah is a lot of your work like that or is it more serious it's a lot more serious i think most of my work i, th- I i've been thinking about this a lot because my mission for stir fry boys you know, with music videos and everything, I, I want to be the role models that I wish I had when I was younger, that kind of Asian representation. But, you know, I've been wondering, how do I do that? Making good music and just being Asian or making music that talks about these issues where people identify it with? And it's hard because I think if you're too much on one side, like say if you talking about these issues too much, you'll be seen as corny. Like, uh, you know, it, it gets too deep. You know, like people like don't want to hear that because for the most part, when people listen to music, they just want to enjoy it. You know, sure. Yeah. Like you want to talk about real stuff, but when I listen to music, I, I just want to feel something. And I think I do have those s- certain songs where I'm talking about race. I think certain I've, I've cut it down to mostly lines now. And I think if you, really analyze it you can tell how i'm feeling um, or at least my perspective on me being asian in this western world but now i think when i release solo music i've decided my artist name is going to be my full name leon zhang uh, or leon zhang and it didn't occur to me because i want to be called leon but there's another artist called leon damn it (laughs) yeah it's really annoying but my brother's girlfriend was like why don't you go by your full name Mm. And I was like, well, first I probably didn't think about that because I wasn't so comfortable with it because it doesn't sound like an artist's name, at least not yet. But that totally makes sense because when I do solo music, I still want people to know that I'm Asian. I want people to know that this song came from an Asian person, although this doesn't sound like an Asian song. Like this is, or this doesn't sound like it's sung by an Asian dude. It it is. I like Stir Fry Boys because it allows because it's a group of like asian rappers and singers whatever we're able to together make fun of ourselves and like take the power out of those stereotypes and say what we want on it instead of other people saying those things to us yeah it's like reclaiming those narratives right exactly exactly and so how are you feeling with regards to your music journey going forward (sighs) i'm now i'm very excited about my music journey especially in LA and then when I come back I'm thinking about doing Berkeley College of Music too for next next fall next year it's also a way for me to stay in America yeah I just like that music brings together so many people and you instantly have this connection because I a lot of my friends went to Australia but when I came back to New Zealand through music I started and, and mutual friends who we made music I met Luke and Daniel and now I'm like Oh, I have to make music with these people. Not only we had the same experiences, but like, if we could do something as an Asian group or like Asian group of guys, a group of Asian guys <laughs> in New Zealand, that would be so cool. In LA, it's so profound already, but in New Zealand, it's even like more crazy, I think, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm very excited. I'm very excited that people really care about the message. I think it's solely because we're, there's not enough Asian artists and you know, that that's great being one of them. But what I hope is that it inspires more Asian kids to start doing music. One of my friends, he has a little brother, I think seven, sixteen 16 or 17 now. And 
he has been making music with his friends. And I'm like, damn, I wish I could have been doing that with my friends when I was 17. Like I, I got started after I graduated, but I'm, you know, what I'm doing is has some good effects because people, you know, some young Asian kids start to believe themselves that they can make music too, because they see what we're doing in LA. And I think that's, it's extremely rewarding. So. And that's the power of representation, right? Exactly. It's all representation. And and for Star Fry Boys, like the representation that got me started was Far East Movement. Ah, uh, yeah. It totally was. And although they made, you know, fun party music, but they made, at the time, they were huge. For Even though it was only like one or two years, but for them to be one of my favorite groups and then searching on Wikipedia and finding out they were Asian... I was just like, what? Like, they can be Asian and still make really cool music and be at the top of the charts. Like, that was just really weird to me. And that probably put a seed inside somewhere where I started to believe that I could do that myself. And I think because I just always wanted to do music for the longest time, Mm. you know, since I was a kid, but I just didn't, I just didn't think you could study in music and a study in university and make anything of it. And tell me more about MSG Approved. MSG Approved is like a brand slash organization that me and my brother and his girlfriend started a little bit before the Stop Asian Hate Rally. What we wanted to do was create the bridge between the younger generation and awareness of racial issues through fashion. Young people really care about what they want to wear and... We thought, okay, if there's some bridge where we can make fashionable clothing that promotes awareness, that can fundraise and donate to the, the, the right causes and the causes that will help the most, I think that's successful. And so, um, we made these really cool totes at the sub Asian hate rally. People really resonated with it as well. And we donated, I think, or well, more than this now, um, but from the rally, $3,080, nice. which I think is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But now we're actually going to restructure our organization where those rallies, uh, those totes that we're selling, we're going to give 100% of those, the sales or the profits to, you know, AAPI causes and grassroots movements. And then on the other side of our brand, we're going to just make clothing and post educational content and so it's an entirely not-for-profit organization or in terms of stop asian hate stuff that's entirely not-for-profit i love designing clothes and unfortunately i don't have a job so (laughs) i need to sustain myself and and i I realized with msg approved it's a full-time job design these posts take a long time getting these toads ordering samples it's a it's a big effort and we're trying to with our next collection we're trying to highlight asian artists and so we're going to we're going to restructure into two parts one it's entirely funding rallies so we're funding the sydney one the stop asian hate collection is entirely not for profit and then the other half still donating 10 percent of every sale but it'll be our own brand just msg approved if you support a brand and what we're doing in terms of the kind of posts we're making, uh, if you want to help us expand, you can choose to buy stuff from the side. If you want just to donate, then you buy our Stop Asian Hate collection and then we will direct it and try to 4X the donation through our partners and stuff and we'll help pick 
the right organizations like Asian there's Asian Law Caucus, Stop AIPI. Oh no, AIPI. Hate. There's a few other ones I forget. But. Is it mostly American organizations? Yeah. So these are mostly American organizations. When I was in New Zealand, though, I was looking for New Zealand organizations to donate to, but what I realized there aren't any. So there's the organization that helped coordinate or give us the resources for the the rally in Auckland. Uh, Love Aotearoa, hate racism. We were trying to donate all the money to them, but they were like, you know, keep it, use it to fund other rallies. There isn't a specific Asian racism organization yet. Mm-hmm. And what happened at, at the Stop Asian Hate rally is, you know, Steph Tan, she organized it, but she lives in America as well. And so it's a little bit difficult because we didn't really create an organization to keep the momentum going. It's hard dedicating your life to fighting racism while also wanting a career for yourself and trying to sustain yourself. I think that's very difficult, and Steph understands that as well because she has an amazing like scientific scientific career. But there aren't enough organizations in New Zealand. I think there might be one that's going to be started soon, but if there was one in New Zealand, we'd also donate to them. Yeah, and that's a good point that you bring up as well, you know, like fighting racism or any sort of social justice it's such a full-time job like it's not something that you can just dip in and dip out of it's not selective like if you truly believe in these causes you need to be in there like 200 300 percent like you can't just pick and choose exactly exactly that that's why like well when I leave tomorrow, we're going straight to the Sydney rally. What's been great from the New Zealand rally is that now my friend in the UK wants to start this rally. Someone just hit me up about like a global rally and she's, I'm connecting her with everyone I know from other, from the other countries and stuff. Cool. But what I'm excited about is taking MSG approved and this mission to LA and getting Asian artists behind as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes. Mm-hmm. And so if people want to support, they can just search MSG Approved on social media, like Instagram, yeah. Facebook. Instagram, Facebook, um, we have a website, msgapproved.com. Yeah, nice. Thank you for joining me, Leon. Um, really appreciate your time, especially so close to when you are about to leave. But yeah, it's been really insightful and I do support you in your journey ahead and your music and also in your social justice fighting (laughs) fighting against racism. So yeah, we'll definitely be following along. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited too. Thank you as always for listening. If you want to support MSG Approved, you can look them up on Instagram and Facebook. Likewise, you can find the Stir Fry Boys on Instagram and YouTube. I will also link their pages in the episode description.